Hello, and welcome to this speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast, featuring everything you need to know about the women who wrote the West in under 30 minutes, give or take. I'm Paul Bishop. My compadre Richard Prosh and I co-host the full-length episodes of the Sick Gun Justice podcast. And while we usually write solo for the speed listen and bonus installments, I'm joined today by the president of the Western Writers of America and a woman who writes the West herself, my friend, Chris Entz. Hi, Chris. How are you? I am really wonderful. Thank you, Paul, for having me be a part of this very important broadcast. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm happy to have you here. Before we dig into the early women who wrote the West, please tell me about your own latest book, Iron Women, The Ladies Who Helped Build the Railroad, as well as how your interest in the historical women of the West began. I've been writing about women of the American frontier for more than 27 years. I got started working on the subject matter, working at a local radio station doing historical moments. And I was writing a historical moment about the Bidwell Bartleson wagon train party that had an amazing woman in the party of more than 80 men. Her name was Kelsey. But I had to dig some to find out that her name was Nancy Kelsey because everything referred to her as Mrs. Benjamin Kelsey. I wanted to find out more about who she was and not necessarily who she was married to. Although by my bringing that up, I don't mean to imply they just left her first name out because men didn't want any women to be included in history. They left her first name out because that was what was proper, was what was decent. The reason why I bring that up is because you hear that an awful lot. It was history, not history. And that's not accurate. So I started writing about that and then it snowballed. I live in the gold country in Northern California. There's so much history here. It's wiping it away like a cobweb. So being able to immerse myself in that history and to write about it. And more than 50 books later, here I am with Iron Women, the ladies who helped build the railroad. I was really fascinated about that because when they took pictures of when the Transcontinental Railroad met up, they made sure that there weren't any pictures of women at this momentous event because they said women had no hand in laying any of the track or surveying any of the land. But what was the pity for them? Because if it hadn't have been for women, nobody would have gotten on those trains at all. Women played an important role, both aesthetically and with the mechanisms that made travel smoother and also did a lot for cutting down any emissions going across the West. Those huge billowing black smoke stacks that would just belch this horrible stuff onto the West. There were women that came forward that said, we're going to make sure that this isn't something that destroys the environment. So women had a hand. They played an important role. It's interesting, their consciousness of environmental issues at that time, before anybody was really talking about the threat. Most certainly. It didn't take much to look at how the steam engine was destroying the landscape with everything that was spewing out into the atmosphere. Thank goodness they were able to do that. But women were also instrumental in coming up with products that made the track and the wheel adhere to one another. It was a woman that invented what we now know as coupling mechanism on a train. It was women who held patents for the crossing guards, which is an important safety measure for railroads. It was women who invented the modern-day refrigerator boxcar. If we didn't have that, the United States' influence in World War I would have been diminished significantly because it was important to be able to get produce and meat from one part of the country to the next part of the country. 
It was a woman who invented the contraption that they used on cattle cars where cows could get something to drink and they could get something to eat. So when your livestock arrived where it was supposed to be, it looked healthy and robust and you could get the highest price for it. Amazing stuff. It was women who invented, okay, we need to have better seating. If it had been up to men, God bless them, it would have just been a couple of barrels and a board for seating on a train. It was women who came up with proper seating, proper lighting, proper ventilation, a washroom. Guys would have been happy with just a bucket. That's why men never ask directions about getting anywhere because they can pee wherever they want to. Women do not have that luxury. Very good point. Last year, I discovered the Western stories of Dorothy Johnson, such as The Man Who Killed Liberty Valance and A Man Called Horse. I did some research on Johnson and discovered she was quite a character. After doing a speed listen installment focusing on Dorothy Johnson and her Westerns, I began wondering about the other early women writers, which prompted me to call you and discuss doing the speed listen installment. Yeah, I was absolutely amazed at the timing that you had because I have just been working on an article about women who wrote the West for our Western Writers of America, wonderful magazine called Roundup, edited by Johnny Boggs. So I was excited that you would call and that we'd have an opportunity to be able to discuss women like Dorothy Johnson, who is a personal favorite of mine. I patterned what I did when I got into publishing around what Dorothy Johnson did. She was my focus. She wrote for a publishing house called Riverbend Publishing, and I made a beeline for Riverbend to do one of my books because I wanted to emulate Dorothy Johnson so much. I mean, she just was an amazing teacher, an amazing writer. I agree, and it led me to research more about the women who wrote the West because of Dorothy Johnson. And I began to become fascinated with the fact their approach in writing the Western was different. They moved away from the male-dominated shoot-'em-ups in favor of much deeper and, at times, militant, unapologetic feminist themes. And I think part of that was they wanted to write about their experience. And their experience coming West was significantly different than men's experience coming West. Men tended to not focus on the same things that women did. Women wanted to share their own personal stories about traveling across the frontier, what it was like, what everyday life was like, being able to take care of your children. That's why books about Laura Ingalls Wilder remain so popular. It was a slice of life. This is what you could extrapolate from what it was being on the frontier because she lived it and wanted to share what that was like. All of those emotions, the hardship. And Laura Ingalls Wilder did not have a great life. It did not work out well for her. So being able to share those hardships, men don't necessarily want to focus on that. They want to write about villainy and courage and gunplay. And for the women, it was an opportunity for them to question what a male-dominated social order assumes to be true. And Laura Inga Wiles really did that challenging of what we expected to see from a Western. And that she found such a large audience for her work. There have been so many women who wrote the West, but being able to find an audience that want to read what women had written about the West Therein lies the rub. I personally enjoy reading those books about going in and laying waste to anybody that's done a disservice to the community. My favorite movie is The Unforgiven. I keep it queued up to the last five minutes where Eastwood goes in and takes care of business. So I appreciate those kinds of Westerns. I'm not saying that there's not an audience or there's not merit in what some of these other women have done, but there's only so much of here's the difficulty I had in childbirth that I can read. 
you and I talked earlier about how commerce affected a lot of this. Men wrote adventure with plenty of muscle, and that's what the audience really wanted and expected from Westerns. But women wrote about ideas, and that sometimes made men uncomfortable. And I like things that make people uncomfortable because it makes them think. Most assuredly. And women were very much preoccupied with a lot of the everyday order of living, taking care of their families. By 1869, you had every woman west of the Mississippi talking about we should be allowed to vote. So that took up a lot of time, too. These women were very involved in the suffrage movement. So their focus was on a variety of different things, trying to make their mark on the West in so many different areas, politically, business, in literature. There were some amazing women who came West and made their living as authors. You and I were talking before the broadcast about Mary Halleck Foote. She came to the gold country with her husband, who was a mining engineer. It took him a while to actually make any money. So Mary Halleck Foote was the breadwinner of the family. She was an illustrator. She was an author. She illustrates books for Nathaniel Hawthorne and for Herman Melville. And she's quite prolific in the magazine articles that she writes. And then she becomes an author. This is how she makes a living writing. There weren't a lot of women that you could say at that particular time who chose to make a living writing. It was very hard work. But again, Mary Halleck Foote, she wasn't just an author. She was also an illustrator. So she was doing double duty, writing these magazine articles and then doing all of the illustration with the magazine articles. But she's not the only woman making a name for themselves in that particular industry, recognizing that she's going to have to make a living at this. You have wonderful authors like Miriam Leslie. I write about Miriam Leslie in Iron Women. And Miriam Leslie is married to a gentleman by the name of Frank Leslie, who is the owner editor of Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper, which were huge. And it was Miriam Leslie, who's also an author, who becomes the editor of the women's version of that particular document. She decides that in order to influence railroad travel, we need to write about railroad travel and we need to send that message out to women and others who will get on the trains. So Miriam Leslie pulls together about a dozen poets and authors and artists and takes this train trip from New York to San Francisco and then back again. And then she pins a book called From Gotham to the Golden Gate, which makes a huge amount of money for Miriam Leslie as an author. And she becomes a very well-known person. And now we look back on it and she did more to influence travel by rail than any other woman in the 18th century. She made such a huge impact. And then later on, when her husband dies, she takes over Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper, even changing her name from Miriam to Frank, recognizing there's money to be made. Miriam Leslie, being the editor, always was on the hunt for women who would contribute stories to her newspaper. Century Magazine was a huge, very popular magazine at that time. And the editors would be on the hunt for women west of the Mississippi to contribute these bold articles. They wanted them to have their own ideas, but mostly they were looking for stories about encounters with the Native Americans. Not only were they looking to be educated, but they thought that there was a certain amount of drama in that. And so they wanted to feed into what we now know as cliched history, where the Indians were circling the pioneers and the settlers just to give the Eastern version of what the West was, just to feed into that. But they got paid money for that. They wanted to support that vision the East had of the West, because that's what sold back in the East. That's absolutely right. 
money does not have any feelings. It doesn't care about whether you're black or white or Native American or Irish or Chinese. It doesn't care if you're male or female. It knows what the market wants. And that's what is dictated when it came to whoever was writing it at that particular time. You mentioned in your article that back in 1901, suffrage leader Mary Livermore paraphrased Horace Greeley by advising, go west, young lady. What made her give that advice? And how do you think it was received? Did she know something that the others didn't know about the opportunity for women in the West? When Livermore makes that particular comment, she's very much aware, as many people were in the East, because this whole suffrage movement started east of the Hudson, but it was realized west of the Mississippi. East of the Mississippi, you had a certain structure, a certain hierarchy that had been established and had been in place for decades and decades. So to undo that was going to take some work. In the West, you had a new frontier with new possibilities. Women could go and they could write their own ticket. They could say whatever it is that they wanted to say. They could set up their own businesses. There isn't anybody that they had to run these items by. They didn't have a checklist. They could go out west and they could invent themselves. And so Livermore could see that. They could see the promise, the possibility inherent in going to a new land where there's nothing set in stone. And so when she says to women, you need to go west if you want to be a doctor, if you want to be a teacher, if you want to go into politics as a female, you need to go west. Nobody is out there doing that right now. You can name your own ticket. You can go. You want to write about the West? You want to get your books published? Go West. Go West. That's where the work is. Again, I don't necessarily think that comment, even though she was a woman speaking at a woman's conference, I don't think it was based primarily on the fact that because you're female, this is what you should do. You need to make a living for yourself. You need to support your children. You need to have a better life. This is where you go to get that. Writing fiction in the West started out with the very unsophisticated dime westerns. History would appear that men were the only ones that wrote the dime westerns. Has your research turned up anything different? Were there women who wrote those dime western stories? I did two books on this particular subject. I absolutely was amazed about that because dime novels were very popular and they were the ones that you would find in the back pocket of whoever was walking west and would certainly be something that women would read over and over again. Yeah, there were a lot of these dime novels that were written by men, but a lot of them were by women. Anne Stevens was the very first woman to write a dime novel, period. She just does an amazing job with this particular story. Again, it's about a Native American. I guess it was because it was a new land and people were curious about what was going on. So when Stevens writes this book, she writes this dime novel called Molesky, The Indian Wife of the White Hunter. People are fascinated with that particular subject. And it's released in 1860. People pick up this dime novel and they read it cover to cover because they think this is what the American West is like, which again, that's where all these stereotypes come from. But when Stevens writes this dime novel, you have the House of Beetle now standing up saying, holy Toledo, this is going to bring us a lot of money. We need more. And the myth of the West gets perpetuated again and again through those dime Westerns. That's right. But again, you and I were talking about writing for motion pictures. How many people have an idea that I can put something down, there's somebody out there waiting to read this, and it will sell instantly the minute I write it? And that is not true. That's not true. 
but you see a story about somebody who writes a screenplay and it gets made and now they have a gajillion dollars. And so you think that's the way it is. But because that is such an attractive notion, the more people want to subscribe to it. And Stevens writes about the Indian wife of the white hunter. People generate to that and they want to know more about it. They're hungry for it. I mean, that romantic tale sold over 65,000 copies in six months. If you were a business owner, you would be saying, okay, I got to have a sequel. Maybe the Indian wife of the white hunter, they now have children. Can we have a sequel to this? Eventually, the dime westerns got turned on their head in 1902 with the publication of Owen Wister's The Virginian, which is really looked at as the first quality western. But in researching the women in the West, what do we find out? That there was another quality western novel published at the same time, written by Francis McElrath, the rustler. This enjoys some limited success, but because of Wister's contacts, as we were talking about, he gets all the attention. The writers lament <laughs> all the time. That's absolutely correct. The Virginian was an absolutely wonderful book. It was a romance. Not that Francis' book was not any less romantic. And both of them were on the same subject, the Johnson County Rule. They used that as a backdrop. But Francis is not as well known as Owen Wister. He's very popular. He's written several books before he does The Virginian. One of them was a parody of the Swiss Family Robinson called The New Swiss Family Robinson. And people ate that up. So he's incredibly popular based on that book, and people want to know what he has written next. Not only is he a popular author before he writes The Virginian, but he's also best friends with Teddy Roosevelt and Frederick Remington. Frances does not have that kind of relationship. If she did, perhaps her book would have been in the same popularity level as Owen Wister's. But that's not the case. Again, if Teddy Roosevelt is your best friend, you can be assured that you're going to sell quite a few copies of your book. It has nothing to do with whether or not people won't accept it because she's a woman or people will accept it because he's a man. It has nothing to do with that. Influence and money being put behind it and celebrity, these are all things that play into that. And Worcester had the advantage. That's right. It's too easy to say that The Rustler isn't as popular as Owen Wister's book because she's a woman. That's too easy to say. There's too many more components in this. Publishers want to make money. They are in it to make money. I promise you that the publisher who was behind The Rustler's idea was not, I hope it languishes on the back shelf and no one ever sells it. That's not good business sense. And that doesn't even make any sense that somebody would be thinking that. I've never written fiction, but let's just say today I decide that I'm going to write fiction and it's in the same wheelhouse and on the same shelf as a Johnny Boggs fiction. I promise you people are going to pick up a Boggs fiction more than they're going to pick up fiction from Chris Sense. A, because he's an incredible author and B, people know Johnny Boggs as a fiction writer. They don't know me as a fiction writer. It's not fair to say that they would buy it because he's a man and not buy mine because I'm a woman. That's just a bunch of garbage. I don't believe it. 
even before McElrath, there was Emma Gent Curtis. And I love this story about her because her first novel, The Fate of Fools, she actually talks about the sex trade and its effect on both men and women. That's bold. And in her 1889 novel, The Administrix, she actually has a heroine who cross-dresses as a cowboy to find the killers of her man. And I just think those are amazingly creative areas for women to be writing about at that time. Not today so much, but at that time. Well, and I wouldn't disagree with you that her ability to say, I'm going to write this down is good, but I want you to know it was inspired by the true story of Charlie or Charlotte Hatfield, who was a real woman who did that in real life. And it got lots of press. People read articles about that. And so Curtis decided to write a book based on that. Now, I bring this up only because she was a smart businesswoman. She saw that other people were going to read that, and so she decided to write it. Now, one can argue that, yes, it was very advanced for a woman to write that. Another argument could be Curtis was no business sap. She knew exactly the way the wind was blowing and knew that if she wrote this, people would buy it. I don't know necessarily. You can say that her motives were completely altruistic, although brave at that particular time. But if you're a business person, again, dollars and coins, they don't know male, female. They don't care anything about it. Curtis didn't necessarily sit down to say, I am a woman. I'm going to write a book about this because I believe women's voices need to be heard. She's like anybody else who wants to make a buck. She understands how popular the story of Charlie Hatfield was. And it was huge in the 1860s. Huge. So she knows. She's smart. This also plays into the story of Luke Short, whose real name was Fred Glidden. His wife, Florence Elder Glidden, found a way to make a living as a writer also. She was represented by their agent, Marguerite Harper, who was obviously female. And she begins writing for pulps like Rangeland Romances, which was edited by Franny Ellsworth, completing the perfect feminist trifecta against all odds at the time. But again, I believe Florence took a page from Miriam Leslie's book, who had done that decades, decades. Miriam Leslie had done that in 1870s. She knew which way the wind was blowing as far as that goes, too. And so that's why she was able to say, seeing Miriam Leslie taking over that, because, you know, Florence doesn't necessarily write under her own name. She takes Luke's name at some point and writes under Luke's handle because it's smart business. He was missing his contractual dates, and she stepped in to finish that off because they needed the money from those contracts. They wanted to keep contracts coming. But how brilliant of her to be able to pick up that gauntlet and be able to make that work. And she does so again. Commerce rules that. Now, she could have picked up that gauntlet and done a very poor job. It reminds me of Ann Hillerman to some degree. Her father, Tony Hillerman, he's the one that got that wonderful Southwest series going. He passes away, Ann Hillerman picks up that gauntlet and then takes it and drives it and is doing a great job with that. Again, it's what the market dictates and if you're able to do that. And Florence was able to do that and do it very well. Gosh, you got to give her a lot of credit. Women like that were smart, savvy businesswomen who were also incredible authors. I don't want to shortchange Miriam at all just because Miriam changes her name to Frank. Just smart businesswomen. And I appreciate that. Again, we're going back to commerce. I think about Dorothy Johnson, her story, The Hanging Tree. It took her 10 years to get that published and 14 rewrites for male editors who kept wanting her to make it more male oriented. Did she stand on her principles and say, I'm not going to go do that and write another story? No, she kept rewriting and rewriting that until she got it sold. 
And then what happens? It gets picked up by the movies. Gary Cooper makes the film and all of her efforts paid off. It's not that she was standing on artistic principle. She was doing business. She's doing business, which she doesn't even use her name, Dorothy Johnson, when she's first getting into it. Eventually, she does become Dorothy Johnson, but she's using her initials at first because when you're writing about what she's writing about, she wants to attract the biggest audience. And again, she's no fool when it comes to commerce. If you know the story of Dorothy, that she was married and it didn't work out well, and she ends up being the breadwinner. And even on her tombstone, it says paid in full. And I believe that Dorothy Johnson wouldn't have been able to pay it in full had she not been a smart businesswoman and understood what was going on. The other thing, too, when we talk about commerce and we talk about the way that we look at things today, I wonder if her work might have been a little bit more accepted had she not looked like Dorothy Johnson looked. And by that, I'm not trying to be insulting, but if she was a little gray-haired woman with a horn-wim glasses that were on a chain. She wore a sweater on a chain. You wonder when she walked into a publishing house with these amazing books that she had, he wonder if people didn't look at her and go, okay, you don't fit the criteria. It doesn't make a difference what it is that you're writing about. You should just be writing about muffins. And that goes back again to her <laughs> baking. All of this plays a part. Yeah, she was somebody that took the hits and stayed in there and made the changes that she needed to make in order for her book to be published, because that's what she was after. That was the driving goal. I want to write this story and I want people to read it. And so I will make the changes. She didn't just say, I'm going to Amazon and print it myself. There was no option like that. So you had to play the game. Before we wrap this up, I'd also like to talk just briefly about Willa Cather. We mentioned her in our last full-length episode of the Six-Gun Justice podcast, which was about wagon trains and cattle drives. She definitely made her mark on the West much the same way that Dorothy Johnson did. Oh my gosh, did she ever. And celebrated author, she was a lesbian and lived in a colony with other like-minded people. So a lot of her sales of her books came from that particular colony. That doesn't diminish the fact that she's a writer. But again, that's commerce. That's um, a very important part of this story, because like you say, it talks to commerce and knowing what your audience wants to read. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. And I'm not making a comment either way. I'm just talking about dollars and cents. Willa Cather writes her first novel, Alexander's Bridge, in 1912. And then she follows up that amazing book with O Pioneers, which is released in 1913. O Pioneers is stunning in and of itself, but she keeps the momentum going. And so in 1922, when she writes one of ours, she gets a Pulitzer Prize for that. That's phenomenal. Willa Cather does not march to the drum of anybody. She is her own woman. She sets her own standards. She doesn't make any apologies for who she is, but she's also a very smart businesswoman. I want to read to you what one critic noted about Cather. In 1847, when she died, they said, in Cather's own simple and economical way, she had about as much to do with establishing the traditions of the realism of the American West as her masculine counterparts. I want to make this comment again. Cather's own simple and economical way. It doesn't pay any respects to whether or not you're male or female. She just happened to be a woman who wrote this incredible book, but she was a sharp businesswoman. If you are a good business person and you're a good writer, those two things are important. But there are plenty of examples of one without the other. 
Chris, yeah. this has been a fascinating conversation. I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me today and sharing your expertise. And thanks also for being a supporter of the podcast. We really, truly appreciate you. I think that this podcast is so important, and I'm glad to be a part of it in any way. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this bonus speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes, Six Gun Justice speed listen installments, and Six Gun Justice conversations are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Till next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and never underestimate a woman of the West. Adios. I'm out of here. Let's ride. <laughs>